0: I invite you to turn to the letter of 1 Peter near the end of the New Testament. We've been studying this now for several months. Move today into chapter 3, and I'll read verses 1 through 7 of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's holy word. The greatest theological spokesman for Christian faith from the time of Paul to the Reformation around 500 AD was, by most people agreed, St. Augustine, a man of great mind and great heart. He was the product of a Christian mother named Monica and a Roman non-believing father named Patricus. Augustine, on one occasion, was writing about his mother to praise her, and he actually spoke about her in a prayer. Here's what the prayer said. "'Lord, she served her husband as her master "'and did all she could to win him for you. "'She spoke best to him by her conduct, which you made beautiful.'" And when her husband neared the end of his life, she gained his soul for you. It's a beautiful tribute to a Christian woman who Augustine says was responsible for his father's conversion. Well, I have yet to ever meet a Christian wife who would come right out and say that her goal in marriage is to dominate her husband. Although I have met Christian women who do dominate their husbands, They just might not say it was their goal. But as a general rule, wives are delighted, I believe, to receive godly, considerate, non-prideful leadership from a husband in times of crisis or times of indecision when they are glad for his strength. But there's no wife I know of who wants to be tyrannized by a husband who thinks he's a little king who can just throw off commands and say, jump now, and she says, how high? There are not very many women that look for that or would respond well to that. The subject of submission in marriage is a much misunderstood subject. We find in our own church's ministry that there are men who abuse their wives, not necessarily by beating them physically, But there is abuse that comes mentally and emotionally by angry, berating words and dominating attitudes or even by cold silences in which Christian men who profess Christ do not follow a biblical understanding of their wife's submission. Here in 1 Peter 3, we have one good piece of this subject, and I would say to you that in all that I say, the rest of this message, we almost need to keep alongside it Ephesians chapter 5 because these are the two great passages on this subject. And what one does not say, the other one fills in. Particularly more said in Ephesians 5 to the husband. You would notice that First Peter 3 seems a little more or a little less balanced in that it's speaking mostly to a wife, and mostly to a wife who, in particular, is married to an unbelieving husband. Now, I want to declare the context of this passage being very important. If you just flip back for a moment into chapter 2 and notice that from uh, verse 12 and 13 onward, Peter has been writing about the idea of the fact that there are Christians with new lives in Christ— Who will find themselves in a situation where there's some dominating authority in their path, whether that be the emperor or a governor or whether that be an employer or a master of a servant? There may be someone to whom they owe certain things who is acting with great injustice towards them and, and with a high handed way, not respecting them. And the subject has been how are they to respond? Should they just rebel or run away or forsake that relationship? The answer has been, look to Christ and see how he stood under unjust suffering. Verses 21 to 23 of chapter 2 have that magnificent picture of Jesus Christ, bearing great and grievous suffering that was altogether unjust, but committing his cause, as Peter said, to him who ultimately judges all things justly. Now, I want to say to you that this next passage in chapter 3 flows right out of that, and that's why the first word of chapter 3 is, likewise. Just as we've been giving you the example of Christ here in reacting to an unjust government or an unjust employer, here's another situation, this time the microcosm of a marriage. And likewise... Wives, be subject to your husbands, even if they do not obey the word. In other words, they're not believers, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, there are many things here that people would find wrong with this passage. Uh, Strong feminist thinking would say we reject anything that even suggests a woman submitting a husband. Well, we would say if the word is understood correctly and held in the right context, this is a very meaningful and very helpful thing. But if the text is abused, as it often is, by men, then indeed we could be thinking that a woman would be at a position of disadvantage. And again, I say there's not much here directed at the husband, although all he needs to do is go read Ephesians 5, and he will find out that the Lord expects some very great things of him. The home is a place where there can be injustice and where a Christian, a Christian wife, has to understand how to interact with or react to that unjust treatment. She may have an unbelieving husband who literally perhaps mocks her or taunts her in terms of her faith, Actually, in the ancient world, in this time, in the first century, it was a general principle that a wife did not have very many rights, and she was supposed to adopt the religion of her husband. So if she was a Christian and her husband was not, she could have been accused of literally disobeying the standards of the state. Well, I want to start by asking this question, what is not meant to be? by a wife's submission, because quite often when people reject this concept, they're not even rejecting the biblical concept. They're rejecting a caricature or a wrong slant on the whole business. This is so cluttered with wrong ideas and wrong practices that it's very hard almost to help people think their way through to the right understanding. And Christian fundamentalism often has not helped us by almost allowing husbands sometimes to assume that they are a little king in their territory and their wife is to be, if he says, wife, time for you to jump, all she has to say is how high. Well, that is absolutely not what it is all about. Nor is there any sense here that should be drawn from this that says women are inferior to men. Absolutely not not in any way whatsoever, not in mental capacity, not in value before God. Galatians 3.28 spells it out. There is no longer male nor female or slave nor free in Christ. In spiritual value before God, men and women are absolute equals, absolutely the same in value before God. But verse 7 here expels that out as well when it says, Your wife is an heir with you of the grace of life. So it is not inferiority or it is not less value that this is all about. It's about a differentiation of role or function within the society. Just as there is a differentiation in the society and the wider government. I am not the President of the United States and I cannot issue edicts of what should happen or not happen uh, in our whole country. God is asking us to respect the idea that there's some degree of leadership needed even within a husband-wife relationship. And now also another thing that this is not, it is not a call for women in general to submit to men in general. This is a call very explicitly for each wife to recognize and try to discover what submission means. It says to her own husband, not other married men, her own husband. But that does not for a moment tell him, you now have a right to become a tyrant or a selfish dictator within your home. And it goes without saying, I realize it's not spelled out here, But certainly it goes without saying, as we would hold this up beside other Scripture, that submission does not include ever a toleration of physical abuse or browbeating by a man's overpowering anger or cold silences in order to push his wife or force his wife into somehow yielding to his control. And let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, We are an evangelical church. We believe that we preach the gospel, and many of our men know Christ as Savior. But the counseling rooms of our church deal a lot with dominating husbands who have not understood what proper submission ought to be. Some women are offended here when Peter says they are the weaker vessel. Maybe you bridle at that, ladies. Let me tell you, I think he's just recognizing facts. He's saying, look, most men are capable of dominating most women. That's just a pure fact. Whether in their musculature or, or their anger or their unrelenting ways of pushing something through until the wife just says, I yield, men are able to dominate women. That's a simple fact. Submission of a Christian wife to her husband does not mean she should be a silent doormat or a punching bag. And believe me, after a certain extent of these kinds of things, the pastors of this church have already and will in the future agree if a husband decides that he is able to abuse his wife over the years and months and never back off on that, the pastor is going to side with her and say, maybe it's time for you to separate not necessarily to divorce, but to get apart for the woman's own well-being. Now, verse 6 here says the wife should not have to fear anything that is frightening. The last thing in the world she should have to fear is her husband. And yet we know and have dealt with women who are afraid of their husbands. What a terrible thing. Her husband should be to her a tower of protection, not a threat. He should be someone who respects her and lifts her up, not someone who grinds her under his heel. A wise husband knows that he ought to and needs to discuss matters fully with his wife and learn from her. She has all kinds of viewpoints and valuable things to say that are not necessarily his viewpoints. He needs to respect her intelligence and her experience in reaching decisions. And in fact, I would tell you that in a healthy marriage, it seems to me that there are rather rare the situations where the husband has to say, all right, honey, we've talked about this for quite a while. Now we're just going to do it my way. I think that's rather rare, actually, because most of the time if there's real listening and real mutuality, something will be worked out that doesn't have to just be his way. But I believe the Scripture does ultimately yield to his leadership if it's a matter where the couple, the family must be protected or someone must step forward and face a threat with strength. That's the husband's role. I'll say in my wife's hearing that I probably spent the first ten years of my marriage thinking, how could anything that I want to do possibly be wrong? (laughs) Really? Really? Now, we're going on 48 years this year, and, and, you know, the second 38 years were different than the first 10. But in the first 10, I thought, why, I love my wife. I have never touched her to harm her, never would. And certainly I know what needs to be done until my wife brought me up very short at one point when we'd been married maybe close to 10 years. And, and she shocked me because for the first time she really got angry and said, you don't listen to me and you're just going your way and not having any consideration for me. She really set me down hard because I knew she was right. Now, I haven't been perfect from that point onward, but I at least began to learn a lesson that I can learn a lot from her. And most of the time, She does indeed submit to me. She's glad to have me be spokesman for many, many things, provided I've listened to her, provided I've shown consideration for her, first of all. Well, if I've tried to say what submission is not, what is it then? What does a Christian wife's submission look like? Now, remember, what we primarily have here is the specific situation of a woman with a non-Christian husband. This is not primarily spoken to the woman with a believing husband. The situation here is even if they don't obey the word up there in, in verse 1, they may be one without a word by their wife's conduct. This is about a wife growing in likeness to Christ, showing what Christ is like to her unbelieving husband. Ladies, I would say... It's a very challenging task that it calls you to. I don't know how many wives sidled up to me after the first service who I know are in this situation and said, thanks, you spoke to where I live. Well, yes, it is very difficult. If your husband maybe even derides your faith, derides your church attendance, criticizes you for the time you spend on Christian things when you he thinks you should be on the golf course with him or something else. What are you to do? You are to look to the example of Christ, showing him respect as far as you can show it without sinning. Of course, you never follow a husband who's commanding you to sin. If he says to you, I know you have that Bible of yours, but I want you to do this, you might have to say to him, I'm sorry, husband. I can't do that. My conscience is captive to a higher authority. But short of that, this text is asking you to try to show him the submissiveness of Christ. I don't know how well you personally know anything about ballroom dancing. I don't know much. You know, the Baptists didn't let us do it. He said any kind of dancing other than square dancing in gym was off-limits. I always kind of wished I at least learned to waltz so when I go to a wedding reception I could dance with my wife, but I can't. My feet don't know what to do. But I have watched a lot of old movies, and Fred Astaire is supposed to be the king of this, right? Man, that guy just seemed to be made of rubber bands, the way his body glided around in movies of the 1930s, and everybody praised Fred Astaire, but... You know the ba- I know this much even if I can't do it I know that the man is supposed to lead he moves with his left foot and the wife's right foot is supposed to follow and somehow he's leading and she's reciprocating well I loved the thing I heard one time I'm sure some of you have heard this they were talking about Fred Astaire and how everybody praised him as the greatest dancer of movie history but they said his partner Ginger Rogers has to be praised too because they said Ginger Rogers had to do every dance step Fred Astaire did, except she did it backwards, wearing high heels. Well, that's kind of humbling, isn't it? There are times when a husband and wife cannot both lead. And even the unsaved husband, if he's not leading into sin or defying the Word of God, there are times, wife, when you may need to let him lead. And he may have to learn some bitter lessons that maybe you know spiritually he's leading in a wrong direction, but you may have to let him do it. This requires a commitment. It means crucifying your ego that says, like most of people who cry for their rights in this society, I want what's mine. And certainly a Christian wife might be crying out that while she's trying to respect and honor a husband who's not a believer. If you are a believer, the the the, uh, edicts of Ephesians 5 come into the picture. And you know, submission to a Christian husband should not be so much of a problem if indeed this is a man who has read Ephesians 5 and seen its stunning ideal that says, you, Christian husband, need to love your wife as you love your own body and be ready to die for her. I I can't believe that there wouldn't be many, many women that would be glad to be led by a man who's honoring Christ and is ready to die for her. She would not be one who would say, submit. Who, me? She would say, look what my husband's willing to do for me. Well, that's an ideal, and it isn't always lived up to, is it? But now I want you to see what Peter writes here about the source of a wife's true beauty. And again he's speaking mainly to those who do not have Christian husbands. If he says if they do not believe the word, how can you win him without words? Peter says, imitate the Lord Jesus. Have a tranquil spirit that does not qu- that is not quick to argue or nag or strike back. But let there be in a sense what the Bible elsewhere calls coals of fire. Put on the unbeliever's head by the example that he sees in you. Be a woman who has an aura of winsome beauty about you that is powerful and influential. Now, Peter says this beauty is not primarily physical. You can't buy it at the mall. You can't get it by the new outfit or some new cosmetics or a new haircut. It's real, deep, deep beauty which does not come from a closet or a jewelry box. And shouldn't we recognize our age and how media affects women today with its unrelenting focus on physical appearance and body type and everything else so that women are subconsciously having it pounded into them all the time. Here's an image for you whether it's in a commercial or in a TV show or a movie, here's what you're supposed to look like. And women say, I could never look like that. And they're constantly laboring under this stereotype to think that they're inferior or ugly or unlovable because they don't measure up to a stupid, impossible image that the society casts for them. Well, Isaiah chapter 3 has a place where the prophet mocked the women of Israel, because at that point in history their concern was to wear fine silks and jangling bracelets, but Isaiah said their souls were like empty tombs. An outwardly stunning, beautiful wife who's dressed in the latest style and attracts every eye when she walks into the room is not God's ideal. God's ideal is a great beauty that comes from her being Composed before God and trusting in Him, not dressed up like a Barbie doll, but exuding the beauty of women of ages past who trust primarily in their God. Now, certainly 1 Peter 3 doesn't oppose a wife doing everything possible to be reasonably attracted. I attended a college, some of you know, a fundamentalist Christian college that seemed to have, I'm sorry I'm going to be critical here, but they seemed to have a belief that not only should a woman not have adornments, she should try as hard as possible to be frumpy. Honestly, there was a ban on jewelry. My wife worked briefly for the college as a secretary, and I seem to remember that she wasn't supposed to wear her wedding band when she was in the office, because that was an outward adornment that was thought to be sinful. Well, ladies, I don't think there's anything in this passage that is telling you don't be as attractive as you are able to be, but don't trust in that. Don't believe that that is what is going to win the heart of your husband. What you are to strive for here in verse 4 is this unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentleness is a word here that calls for the way Jesus was. He had great strength but he held his strength in reserve. He didn't use it to argue or strike out or debate or insist on his rights. Instead, he deliberately trusted in God who ultimately would have the final word on what was just and unjust. Let Christ be your model, ladies. It's a hard model to follow, I'll grant, but it's a stunning one when you can achieve it. And we're told briefly here of Sarah. We could spin out the tale of Abraham and Sarah. It's quite an interesting story, really. But I remind you uh, what Genesis tells us, that Sarah was a very beautiful woman. She was Abraham's half-sister, so he was able to go through a country and have another king spot her and say, Oh, I want her for my harem. And, and are, are you married to her? She's my sister, Abraham said. Pretty cowardly, Abraham Not a good thing to say. It was half true. She was his sister. But he didn't protect his wife in doing that from possibly being taken by another man. Sarah herself was feisty, besides being beautiful. Beautiful enough that I would guess, the way the description comes, that if she crossed the trail and the camel caravan was coming along, all the camel drivers hit the brakes. Let me tell you. This lady was gorgeous. And she had a mind of her own, and she spoke it. And a few times she did some things that were a little deceitful. But ultimately she's praised because she looked to her husband to have the lead in their relationship. Well, we could say so much more about that, but time doesn't allow. You might think as I close that not much is said here to the Christian husband. Some people read this passage and they say, look at this. Peter's beating up on the, on the poor wife of an unbelieving husband with six verses directed at her and only one directed to husbands. Well again, it's a specific situation. It's a situation where the husband is not a believer. I believe Peter would be quick to say to you, "Husbands, you who are believers, check out Paul in Ephesians five. Check that out. The standard there is so high, it's amazing. As Paul says, a a husband should be ready to die for his wife. So don't think, men, that you're somehow let off the hook by this passage not saying as much to you. But the key advice it does say in verse 7 is this, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing her honor. That to me says be a student of your wife, not of women in general, but of your wife. Try to understand what particular strengths she has, and you may find they're greater than you think they are. Also try to understand what weaknesses and fears she might have, and you might find out those make her weaker in those areas than you realized. Your task is to understand those things and to lift her up, protect her from deliberate outside harm, boast of her reputation, and live with her according to understanding. And look at the penalty that's there, men, if you will not even attempt this. It says your prayers will be hindered. Your spiritual life will not progress very well if you cannot live considerately with your own wife. There was a fine book written about marriage. Oh, I suppose it's 25 years ago now, but it's one of the best I've ever encountered still. A man's name is Mike Mason. Mike Mason wrote a little book called The Mystery of Marriage. Get a hold of it if you can. He said many wise things and biblical things. Here's one quote from him. Holy matrimony was never intended to be a comfort station for lazy people. Instead, he said, it is a systematic program of deliberate, thoroughgoing self-sacrifice. Mike Mason wrote, I find there is no way to be able to surrender my will except when I'm surrendering it to another will. And marriage is a crucible in which two wills must be melted down and purified and made to conform. The dynamic of this, he said, is captured in what John the Baptist said about Jesus He must increase, I must decrease, she must increase. I must decrease. It's a two-way street. Yes, the husband's a leader in a certain sense, but the respect, the honor is a two-way street. Submitting yourselves one to the other, Paul said in Ephesians 5.21. We must look beyond the imperfect marriages that we all have, folks, and they are imperfect. We keep John Light very busy in this church with imperfect marriages. But we look to Christ, who called himself the husband of his church. And if you know Christ and acknowledge him as Lord, let the mind that was in him be in you. And take up a basin and a towel and serve that one whom God has given you as a spouse. Because when Jesus did that, the Scripture says that is what caused him's name to be exalted above all other names. Here's a challenge for married couples. And I can dare say that there are those among us who are widows and widowers who might say, oh, that I could go back and have a day or a week or a month to live with my wife or my husband who's no longer living and enjoy what God has given me in that precious gift. Honor the gift while it is yours. Father, here's a difficult challenge. And as always, when we have our most difficult challenges, we look to Jesus as the answer, the antidote to all our imperfections, to wives who struggle with husbands who are indifferent to faith, to wives who struggle with husbands who claim faith but don't act it out, to husbands who have same struggles coming in their direction. We ask, O God, that you would allow us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by his Spirit at work, that we might, might not need arguments and debates and fierce words to win someone, but only a life that shows the grace of Jesus. We cannot do this without you. So we pray you make it possible in us, in Jesus' name. Amen.